Welcome to the fourth episode of Capture Q. Today's guest is Miriam Kemi Havilland. I knew Miriam when she lived in Vancouver before relocating to Paris. In her friend circle, she's known as Kemi, so I often refer to her that way. We knew each other back when we used to publish a political opinion blog where we talked about every type of issue imaginable. But today, she's much more. She's a professional researcher, a strategist, and a designer, and she's currently completing her master's degree. In this episode, we cover a lot of ground. We talk about technology, media, journalism, how people fall prey to conspiracy theories and disinformation online. Kemi's insights are fascinating. So with that, we'll get right to it. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Kemi. It's nice to have you on. Thank you. Let's start out by talking a bit about your research. You're completing your master's degree in strategic foresight and innovation at OCAD in Toronto. Do you want to talk about the work you're doing there? Yeah, definitely. Um, So for my thesis, I've decided to look at information systems online and mis and disinformation in Canadian society uh, specifically. And uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting stuff. Do you want to explain to our listeners what the difference is between misinformation and disinformation? Yeah, of course. So um, the generally accepted definition is that uh, it's based on intent. So it's that misinformation is information that's shared without the intention of being uh, directly harmful. Um, So that would be something like uh, if a journalist got uh, information wrong or something like that, and then they issued a retraction. So the intention there is not to cause harm. And disinformation is information that is knowingly incorrect and knowingly shared to cause harm. So that would be um, somebody with malicious intent, sharing information, trying to persuade maybe politically or scientifically uh, to sway an audience and uh, it is intended for that purpose. So in the internet era, the digital age, we've seen a rise in both misinformation and disinformation with both of those intents. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's important to note that uh, the intention argument sort of relies specifically on the intention of the author. So a lot of people will share something that is technically disinformation, but by the time, you know, the average person shares it, it's just misinformation, right? Because you're not intending, you don't know that it's wrong. You're just sharing it because you're sharing it. But yeah, we're seeing a rise in both Mm -hmm. all over the place. So in talking about intention, um, you're seeing obviously the rise in this disinformation, mostly because of a certain intent. Why would somebody aside from the obvious reasons, political and otherwise, want to share information that was incorrect? Um, So there's actually a number of reasons. Uh, The most uh, generally accepted are uh, either political or ideological or financial. Mm -hmm. And then there's also like there's sort of a third group, which would just be sort of social influence. So there are people who do this for clout, um, trying to get followers. We know based on the evidence that mis and disinformation spreads more virally, it spreads faster, it spreads deeper, and it attracts more views, clicks, likes, etc. And so because of that, people will kind of latch onto it in order to become more popular online. So that's kind of the social aspect. And then there's the ideological um, or political which would be that you have a specific goal, a specific political ideology that you support and you're spreading dis or misinformation in order to further push that ideology because again, it is a more popular form of information or it excites more response from people. 
And so that's why people would share it. Um, And then the last one is financial. And so basically if you can build up following or if you can get clicks and you can get uh, people to interact with your posts in a really, really large way, you will see financial benefits from that. So either through advertising or let's say you have a really popular YouTube channel, advertising revenue is the main way that these pages make money. And so if you can build up enough of a following, you will make money. Um, So yeah, that's the third one. It seems interesting to me that truth and that accurate information wouldn't be as viral um, or as profitable. Have you looked into that at all? Um, I can't say for sure. I mean, I know from my research um, that we know that inaccurate information travels faster and just gets more interest. One of the reasons would be just the style of the information. So when people share mis and disinformation, uh, they purposefully, it's shared in a way to get an emotional reaction. So it'll have like a really emotional headline or it'll be a piece of content that will immediately cause the reader to react emotionally and say like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna share this right away. That's probably part of it. Truthful information just isn't that reactionary. Yeah. And, um, and partially too is just journalists in general are going to avoid making really you know bold political statements in their headlines or scientific claims in their headlines because I mean, that would potentially be irresponsible if it's not, if it's not factual. And so um, it's probably just the nature of the information, if I were to say anything Mm -hmm. definitive. Yeah, I guess things that are framed in a black and white narrative, they they don't leave enough room for nuance. And, uh, you know, if if your your newsroom can't afford it or, you know, you as an individual, a content creator, don't have the time or the resources to to dig up or to speak to experts. um, Yeah, it, it makes sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, that's a huge part of it. Nuance, I think I said this before, but nuance dies online. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) things tend to be framed as either black or white. And if you can make a really bold claim, and you can just say like, this is how it is, which just, it's just not real life. But if you can say that you just attract more people to that cause. And yeah, I mean, responsible journalists aren't going to make like these really outlandish statements just claiming something to be fact without uh, leaving space to correct themselves or, you know, etc. It's interesting. Um, I know in your research, you were looking at an effective government response, which one do you think would be easier to tackle misinformation or disinformation? And how would you expect a government um, or any type of governing body to to tackle that? I mean, again, like I like I mentioned previously, uh, the intention is really, it really deals with just the author. And so in that sense, there is a potential for going after the authors of this information. But the biggest barrier to that is just free speech laws, obviously, which is extremely important. And we don't want to, you know, over censor people. But I think I mentioned this before, in Canada, we used to actually have a law about sharing disinformation or information that was knowingly false. And that was actually uh, deemed unconstitutional or against the charter, sorry, not unconstitutional, (laughs) that's American, Um, but it was deemed to be against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And uh, we actually removed that uh, law. So it's still, I believe it's still actually, like if you look it up, it's still there, but it's just considered um, unenforceable because it goes against the Charter of Rights and Freedoms against freedom of expression. 
And so that's really the biggest issue is that uh, you can't police people basically for saying something that's false, even if they know that it's false, because that's free speech. Until it gets into sort of libel and hate speech, people have a right to say what they want, even in online spaces, even if they know that it's wrong. And you can police things like hate speech and you can police things like uh, libel. And for the most part, people try to online. Like there is still obviously a lot of hate speech happens online, but that is somewhere where the government can actually step in and say like, this is not only is this disinformation or whatever, but this is also hate speech and you can't publish this. But really that's kind of where it ends. And, and right now that's what our laws address. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But between misinformation and disinformation, I think from a legal standpoint, there really would not, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but there really, I don't think that there's a way for the government to kind of surgically go in and say, like, there's a way for us to stop this spread by introducing some sort of legislation. Interesting. Yeah. Um, You sent me a report from Evidence for Democracy about misinformation in Canada. Do you want to talk a little bit about that report and why you found it so impactful? Yeah, so they were looking um, specifically sort of at what I'm looking at, which is misinformation and disinformation in Canadian context and how that interacts with Canada, our parliamentary system and Canadian society. And the reason that that is, I mean, I guess important (laughs) is because a lot of misinformation is looked at through an American lens, especially because we're so close to the States. And it really, right now, mis- and disinformation in the States um, affects their politics and uh, their policy a lot. And uh, we need more studies that focus on Canada and how that's affecting political polarization in Canada or scientific information in Canada. And so this report was sort of just introducing the topic of misinformation in a Canadian specific context. And so they they do outline a little bit about sort of how that affects our parliamentary system. Um, in Canada, it's a little bit different than in the States, obviously, because we are not split across a two-party system the way the States are. Mm-hmm. And so we see that political polarization isn't as effective when it comes to dis- and misinformation online because we have so many, I would say, different viewpoints politically. So mm-hmm. we obviously do have a, a similar spectrum, but... Um, so that was one thing that the report looked at and and that was really interesting and they basically outlined that this is you know a space for a lot more further research canadian specific information and research on this is sadly lacking and also canadian specific organizations that sort of help to keep people informed about this and educate on this are also lacking and Mm -hmm. so uh yeah so it was just kind of a, a a jumping off point You've done some work with with social media. Um, And what I find interesting is that obviously the spread of misinformation and disinformation comes on, you know, Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, YouTube. And just hearing you talk about people who are trying to build an audience, trying to gain clout. And that's all risen in lockstep with social media changing the order of their feeds. They moved from a chronological timeline. So seeing tweets or posts or shares from people that you follow to prioritizing and putting at the top of your feed the most popular, the most viral, the most shared, the things they think you want to see. And the only one that seems to have given you the option to go back to the chronological order so you just see who you follow is Twitter. Do you find that that versus their other model has any effect on on the, on the viral nature of any of these these social media posts? Um, it's hard to say. I don't know if 
I can't think of any studies that I've looked at uh, that speak specifically about, you know, the algorithmic organization of these platforms and whether or not information spreads more virally on, on some versus others. I mean, I can say that from the studies that I've looked at, information spreads virally on all of them. Uh, Facebook <laughs> is probably the most popular, but their algorithms are one of the things that uh, a lot of studies look into is just the algorithms in general. They're, they have no obligation to be transparent, and so they're not. And uh, we don't really know, well, we don't know how they work at all. And and some of these bigger and some of these newer algorithms, they don't even really know how they work. They're, they're sort of algorithmic black boxes. And they learn from themselves and from the data, right? Um, but basically, yeah, the the way they essentially work is that they push the most the content that you are going to react to uh, the most to the top, um, except for, as you mentioned, Twitter. Um, and they try to make you spend more time on their page so that they can show you more ads. That's essentially like they're selling your eyeballs to advertisers. And in order to do that, they their algorithms learn from your behavior and give you what you want to see or what you're going to interact with. And so yeah, because of that, you're if people are going to interact more with mis and disinformation, that's what you end up seeing more of. And that's really unfortunate. <laughs> but as for the difference between like Facebook and Twitter or Instagram and Twitter, I would say, like from a personal experience, um, Instagram and Facebook are a lot more obvious about their advertisements. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's not necessarily a negative. I mean, the ads are targeted to you and they get to know you well enough that like it's advertisements for things that you want or things that you enjoy seeing mm -hmm. but it's still that's what they're selling to you and i would say that uh the chronological order of twitter kind of makes that slightly less apparent mm -hmm. but i mean it's obviously still there so in talking about algorithms um this is separate from from this topic but you've done research with algorithms and racial and gender bias uh within those algorithms do you want to talk a little bit about that research yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a whole <laughs> topic unto itself. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, basically, algorithms learn from data. And algorithms are coded by people. And both of those things can have inherent biases. So essentially, if you're not looking at who is who is creating your algorithm, and if you're not looking at where the data is coming from, and I mean, there's a whole host of other places where bias can creep into algorithms, then you are going to create an algorithm that is biased. Um, a really good example, there, there are so many really good examples, but uh, a really famous example is um, this technology called Compass. Um, it is a technology which scores potential. Uh, so it basically, when you arrest, when a police officer arrests somebody, they bring them in and uh, they get them to fill out this form. And then the technology gives them a score from one to 10 on three different uh, parameters. And it basically tells the officer and, and or parole officer or a judge uh, what the likelihood of this person reoffending is. And uh, so it gives them a recidivism score. Hmm. And uh, ProPublica did this huge investigative report on this. It's really interesting if anybody wants to go read it. Um, and basically found that this algorithm was extremely biased, um, scored black defendants much, much higher than white defendants. And uh, even though race wasn't actually one of the uh, like one of the parameters that was even put into the algorithm by the inmates. So if you were 
filling out this form, race wasn't on there as a question. But because uh, there are so many systemic um, racial inequities in the States, there are a lot of things that are sort of race adjacent that can cause bias uh, to skew towards, uh, to appear to be skewing towards race. And uh, yeah, so they found that this algorithm was probably, it was something like four times more likely to score a black person high, quite high for a reoffense and a white person uh, four times lower um, than their likelihood of reoffense. And so uh, that's a really good example. There's a lot, like there's so many, I could get into so many of them. <laughs> It's, it seems absurd that you would leave such important decisions to an algorithm. <laughs> I, I don't, yeah, that's, that's absurd. Um, is there any way that we can, you know, tackle this? Can we prevent the interest in, in algorithms to take over certain jobs that clearly need, you know, way more empathy and way more understanding and knowledge is is there a solution to this i mean there are a lot of researchers that uh and a lot of ethicists tech ethicists that are calling this out uh within tech companies and from outside and i will say that there are some technology companies with specific algorithms um, especially around you know facial recognition detection things like mm -hmm. that that when they get called out they they will correct them they will go back and they'll they'll fix their bugs and uh there are some good examples of that, especially in facial recognition um, softwares. Um, but currently, there is no law in place that requires that an algorithm be ethical or be unbiased. That is, I mean, those are obviously concepts which are really hard to define. Um, but one of the things that my team and I, uh, when we were researching, looked into was the potential for having something like an ethics review board or just some sort of review board that was, you know, created from within the industry, from industry experts that reviewed algorithms and could assess their bias capacity before they were introduced into society, right? Uh, because these algorithms are like these technologies are just being sold. Like so, some so Compass is in use in jurisdictions in the states, which is crazy. Because um, if you look at the results, it's it's not the best and this is true for a lot of algorithms that are used to quote unquote solve problems and i mean it was actually introduced as a way to reduce bias because they felt that if it was a machine um scoring somebody's chance of re like likelihood of reoffense then they would be reducing the bias that a judge would have but that's not the case and that's true for a lot of these algorithms mm -hmm. to me that seems like a very a very smart idea some sort of ethics review board where people in the industry and academics could come together and and hold these you know the effects of these algorithms to account i want to ask you i know you did some research where you interviewed journalists have you found in the course of doing those interviews that journalists or their fact checkers or copy editors are having difficulty determining, you know, the fact from fiction, misinformation from disinformation, or any of, you know, the sort that would lead them to, to write an incorrect piece? Or is that not as common as we think it is? Um, I would say it depends. I would say probably yes and no. There are so many people out there trying to sort of teach people about uh, media literacy and information and digital literacy skills and just learning how to 
be able to do research in the digital age. And there's a lot of resources out there that are trying to keep up with, you know, debunking really common misconceptions or myths. Um, but I would say it's definitely easier to get the answer that you want nowadays. Mm -hmm. So if you are looking to be confirmed in your opinion, you you can be with pretty much any opinion that you would have on, in the world because you're going to find a source that will back you up probably. Um, so I think that definitely if we don't know how to keep up with accurate information and it's and and it's getting a lot harder nowadays i think to find good sources so before people used to say like you know if you're looking at an article maybe check the sources if the sources are seem legitimate then you might be good to go but nowadays it's like the source can seem legitimate and still be Ill illegitimate you know some something can be published in a scientific paper and that paper is actually a pseudoscientific paper where people just pay to have their research quote unquote research published mm -hmm. and those exist um and yeah so you can find scientific papers that are published in journals <laughs> i'm putting quotes around all of these mm -hmm. um that are not accurate at all and if you were to actually dig into the science of it and look at the actual you know, the study, then you would know that it's not, but you have to have a certain level of scientific literacy to be able to do that. So I would, I would say that to yes, to an extent, it is getting harder if you're looking for, especially for um, very niche or specific information. And it is a lot easier for confirmation bias to just live because you will find multiple sources to confirm your opinions or your facts. Or facts. <laughs> Mm hmm. It, it calls to mind that Vanity Fair piece. I'm sure you read that the one uh, talking about the lab leak theory and how, you know, we steered away from that because Trump said it and he's vulgar. It must be wrong. He's not credible. So, you know, don't touch it. And then having The Lancet come out, you know, one of the most renowned scientific journals come out with an editorial, not research, but an editorial signed by 27 scientists saying, you know, we're not going to touch this. It's bigoted. It's xenophobic. It's essentially wrong. And all the while, other researchers are saying, hey, you know, maybe this is something we should look into and, you know, them being dismissed and, and you know, told they're crazy. And, and then now finally established media is taking it seriously. And they're, you know, it seems every political pundit is talking about it now. And, it was dismissed as, you know, there's no evidence, but, you know, there's that shift. And it just seems there's this political impediment to science uh, because we're so polarized. Yeah, well, it's it's actually interesting. I mean, I've been following that pretty closely. Um, and it's funny, this kind of gets at two things that I just recently read a paper about that went really into detail about how to define misinformation. And it talked about how, like, in defining it, we bound it or boundaries on it, which means that something like this, where it is, it was misinformation, like people sharing that at the time, that was not the best available evidence. Um, and it, the majority of the scientific community still believes that um, uh, zoonotic transfer is much more likely than a lab leak. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is getting more credibility. And if it turns out to actually be factual, then all of those people at the time were still selling were they still sharing misinformation or were they, you know, canaries in a coal mine? 
Um, and, and that was something that uh, was really interesting um, in this piece. But yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because these are misinformation is a social construct. Like it's, it's made by disagreeing with or, or being wrong about the best available evidence at the time, right? So it, it necessitates that there be evidence at the time and that it be temporal. And we talked about this last time. I think there is, uh, because of, there's so much division and polarization online, people have a really hard time being wrong about things. And uh, I think that that's definitely part of it uh, when it comes to, you know, going back on something that you said. I think the scientific community doesn't, like, I would say genuine scientific research doesn't really have a problem with going back and saying, like, we were wrong about this we were just going off what we had the best information for at the time. This is what we put out. And then now we have this information. A lot of the reason around around why this has gained so much credibility, I think, is uh, because of the lack of transparency in China itself and, and, uh, and being slightly less than willing to collaborate with international investigations and, and the WHO when they were in China saying that they, you know, didn't have the opportunity to do as much of an investigation as they wanted, et cetera. Last time we spoke, you were telling me a little bit about why people believe in whether it's conspiracy theories or just false information or they they need to stick to one narrative and not change their minds on it. Um, you know, obviously there is the political, but I remember you telling me that it had a lot to do with social circles and with feeling connected to the people around you and wanting to stay, you know, in cohesion with the people who believe certain things. Um, you explained it much better. <laughs> do you want to touch on that a bit? Yeah, for sure. So, um, so yeah, so, I mean, you really did summarize it pretty well. So we do tend to, uh, people, I'm like, it's a combination of a couple factors. People like to be a part of a, of a community. And what that translates to online is when we find a community that we feel like we're a part of and that we identify with, we will commit to the social cues and the, and the social culture of that community. And so what that means is if we are in a community where you know everyone in your community believes X, then you are most likely going to believe X. And you, if, even if you don't believe it, you are going to pretend to believe it or act like you do or share the information to get the acceptance of your community. And that's, and then outside of that, we trust the people in our community online with people of like-minded uh, people and they share a piece of information. You're more likely to trust them that that information is correct. Um, and that is just based on, you know, like that's just human psychology and that just goes back to human evolution. But yeah, again, like what that translates to online is that if, we've built up these communities around specific identities and specific ideas, we will proliferate and we will share the information and ideas and trust the information from the people within that community, which is, I mean, that is kind of the definition of an echo chamber. So, Yeah, it's interesting. I know, I know you and I talked about this before, but the idea that you know, the generation that kind of came into their political opinions uh, through YouTube and through the documentaries available, um, you know, whether they were Zeitgeist or Michael Moore, um, you know, or a little bit more conspiracy theory about the New World Order and, you know, false flags and all of that. Um, it, it seemed to me that that kind of more radical left um, person 
fortunately came out the other end. And I think a large part of that is because we understand the internet and we understand kind of the journalistic process and editorial process and how to spot, you know, a fact-checked website, um, you know, that actually cites research um, versus one that doesn't, you know, just a character telling you things they think. And, you know, you and I having worked on that, you know, (laughs) political opinion blog that we had from, you know, 2011 to... 2014 or so we knew the editorial process there (laughs) we saw you know who was fact-checking and and you know our political leanings and biases more keen to publish certain things and I think that if you don't have that knowledge that our generation has um it's easier to fall down those rabbit holes and, and find QAnon and to believe in these heroic narratives of being against you know child trafficking and whatever it just seems to be you know without that technical wherewithal and that awareness of how the internet works um we're seeing a lot of those individuals who are just getting into it now fall into those kind of conspiracy rabbit holes yeah i mean that's i definitely think that that's part of it i mean it is and it 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 100% is and it and it isn't at the same time because there's you know i feel like there's a whole new generation like gen z is coming up with all these and and they have tons of viral misinformation that shares like all over all over tiktok and it's like this whole i almost feel like it's like this whole re renaissance of <laughs> some of certain types of viral misinformation and and uh and yeah, it's interesting. It's like, it's, it's almost like a parallel trend with like two different generations. And we, we're kind of the generation in the middle. I mean, we're not unaffected. There are a lot of people who are oh, yeah. um, sharing this and disinformation from millennials. But I think that, uh, I think that definitely to your point, um, yeah, the older generation, they may not understand as easily or as transparently that like you can just make anything like make any website and put it online if you have and you know if you have enough money you can even buy like a very very good sounding domain that seems very legitimate and you can pay really great designers to make your website seem true and and there's a you know this is a huge problem actually in in a lot of parts of um, the states in eastern europe where these websites are made to look exactly like news sites and they literally make money by making fake news um so yeah i I think that that's uh yeah it's a huge problem right now have you looked into um you know whether it was cambridge analytica or the ira the internet research agency i think based out of russia um and the claims that they polarized uh, a lot of developing countries and north america by setting up AstroTurf campaigns. So, for example, in the U.S., um, you know, having a Facebook group post about Black Lives Matter and then have across the street a neo-Nazi group, you know, post a rally for that, just to foment division. Have you looked into or are you familiar with, I guess, any of the updates on whether that was as sinister or even as effective as uh, it's been claimed in dividing America or polarizing, um, you know, countries in, into two divisions? Um, I mean, I think to a certain extent, I, I've read a few studies, like there's nothing, it's never going to be possible to say definitively that this was something that definitely changed the outcome of the election or that definitely caused um, um, this type 
like this type of rife division. Like there's there's definitely there's never going to be any sort of con concrete conclusive evidence to that. There is evidence, obviously, that, you know, people join these groups because they and they were created by, you know, a Russian troll <laughs> um, and they and yeah, and there and there is evidence that they actually, you know, made these groups and organized marches and organized protests and um, or attempted to in some cases. Um, so that so that is something that is factual and that is true. Uh, but yeah, we can't say for sure that that this, you know, caused a specific outcome. We can just say that it exists and it gained following. Um, I, I would say that from what I've read, uh, those types of very specific, like coming from Russia and influencing um, American politics or Canadian politics. I will say also that in Canada, it's a lot less uh, common, but those, because we know the threat is there, uh, Facebook and Twitter are much better at detecting those accounts now and mm -hmm. and really stamping them out. Um, but it's kind of a cat and mouse game because you know they find new ways to create new sock puppet accounts or new bot accounts. And then that becomes the problem that needs to be solved. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Do you want to talk a little bit about the origins of distrust and, you know, touch on why people might be hesitant to trust an accurate source? Oof, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I feel like that goes back actually quite a ways. So um, people have been losing trust in institutions in Western democracies for a while. And I mean, it's hard to say exactly what is causing that. It, it's different depending on the institution and depending on the studies that you read. But uh, I think I mentioned this last time, the Edelman Trust Barometer said of 2021 that we've officially entered a trust bankruptcy, that we need to rebuild trust from the ground up for institutions um, because we are rapidly losing trust in politicians and scientists and media. And, uh, and this isn't a problem just in Canada. Canada has seen a decline, but just all across the world, this is a huge problem. Mm -hmm. And not just, I mean, I said Western democracies, but uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer looks at China as well and, and some other countries, and, and they've also seen a decline in trust. And I mean, it's definitely something that influences the ability for information online to be, to have any sort of like sound. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to think of a good word, but uh, it's hard to fight back against it because if a politician or say a media company comes out and says, no, you shouldn't trust X information, then you're not going to trust that person because we've been losing trust in those institutions for a long time. And so we're not going to believe the media when they tell us that, you know, this information is wrong, but the information that they produce is right. Yeah. And I, I mean, for the media specifically, there's a few things like the media itself is losing a lot of, I mean, obviously it's in crisis. It's losing a lot of funding. It's losing a lot of uh, revenue, it has to change its revenue model, essentially. And it's competing with these massive technology platforms for eyes on news, right? And so they have to compete with mis and disinformation, and they have to try to make their information more appealing in ways that attract viewers and attract readers. And that's hard. You can't compete with misinformation by being more outrageous <laughs> or yeah. lying more because then it just loses trust. Um, and I think we mentioned, or I mentioned this before, but you can see that some publications or quote unquote mainstream publications will actually, you know, publish something and the headline will be totally outrageous and they get called out for it because people don't want to see that. 
from like the New York Times or, mm -hmm. you know, or the Washington Post. They want a headline that accurately describes the news that they're about to read. Yeah, I'm getting yeah. a little bit off topic, but. No, you're right. It, it reminds me of when you and I last spoke and we were talking about just, you know, the legacy media, for example, the New York Times, um, you know, multiple instances of, of fact checkers, you know, bringing inaccuracies to the editorial board and the, the editor is saying, you know, but they're our star reporter. They have a massive Twitter following. Um, they don't want to challenge a narrative or tamp down the numbers of people who a certain person's narrative brings to their paper. For example, there was the 1619 Project, the Caliphate podcast, uh, you know, a number of, of things, even going back to the Iraq war and reporting, you know, WMDs and yeah, just kind of sticking to this narrative that they, you know, either believe is is right at the time and just didn't heed the warnings or they just think they're on the right side of history or or it is sinister and they do just want to sell newspapers <laughs> as they always say oh yeah for sure and i mean like we like to put them sort of in a different camp but in their in nobody is immune from the problems that these information like online information systems cause right so you know, if the New York Times has a really popular reporter that is, you know, basically a it's their own celebrity journalist, they they need that person for viewership and they need that person for um, to attract readers, and uh, they're not going to, <laughs> or they might they might be less inclined to try to get rid of that. And the same with the the sort of in group versus out group, they're not going to challenge their in group narrative in the same way that the rest of us wouldn't. They may be more likely to, but you know they're not immune from that uh, from that either. So, and that brings me to a point that you and I discussed before. Um, you know, with Donald Trump being the most disgusting, repulsive, outrageous person you could ever dream would have anything to do with with politics. You know, and the natural aversion to him, but it it led to a trend, and I think it was uh, Maureen Dowd and CNN's Josh Rogan who both kind of came out and said, as reporters in Washington, they fell into a philosophy of of orange man bad where everything he said was wrong um you know and even further everything he said was to be mocked and absolutely incorrect and you know you you cannot agree with it no matter what and now you know both of them saying how do we reel our reporters back from that um you know how do we again start to really look at information regardless of its messenger and and try to figure out what's true based on, you know, the merit of that argument, uh, regardless of political opinions, um, you know, that it kind of was the essence of reporting and, and we should go back to that. About this a little bit and about how um, it was, like, it's hard to want to give, him, to give him credit for anything or his government credit for anything, even though there were things that, you know, like I mentioned, the um, international minimum tax, which incidentally enough, I actually read an article that came out because that, that is something that the G7 countries have agreed upon is a 15% international minimum tax. And um, the article I read, like gave absolutely zero mention of how that this was an influential policy that was actually started under the Trump government. And uh, yeah, we mentioned this in the last, in the last time we chatted that, uh, the aversion for him as and not necessarily the individual journalists aversion for him but their their reader base like they know that the people who interact with their news and interact with 
with their reporting don't want to hear about how his tax plan is actually good or whatever because they want they want what they want and so that's what they're the reporters feel obligated to deliver on so I think that it's it's it goes back to being a part of you know the in-group narrative and and uh, and this has a lot to do with just polarization in general which again bringing it back to a Canadian context like we we don't suffer from as much but uh, evidence is showing that Canadians are becoming more effectively polarized um, so yeah we gotta be careful. Actually, can you explain that? I remember you were telling me it was, you know, this progressive tax on in general corporations and, you know, trying to tackle offshore havens and tax avoidance. Um, can you explain that one again? Because it seemed to be a pretty uh, left wing tax. Um, yeah, so I don't want to get this totally wrong. So <laughs> I'm definitely not like a tax researcher. But it's, um, it's a it's a mandatory minimum tax on international corporations, and so basically, this was uh, this is a this is a policy that uh, G7 and OECD countries have been looking into for a very long time, and it's it's attempting to get rid of offshore tax havens basically, mm-hmm. and to force large corporations to pay some sort of tax in in the countries that they operate in. Um, but for a really long time, this was just kind of off the table because these companies, a lot of these huge, especially tech companies that are largely digital and operate all over the world, are their offices are in the States and America has, you know, very lenient tax policies. But under the Trump government, I think it was a, I, f- I feel like it was a 5% tax, but correct me if I'm wrong, we'll, we'll have to fact check this later. But it was a, it was a mandatory minimum tax, essentially, and, and that opened the door to the other G7 countries being able to come together and say like, okay, we're all going to implement some sort of policy across the board so that they can't, you know, leave the States and go to like Europe and have their headquarters there. Um, And yeah, I was just reading an article about how the G7 countries finally came to an agreement and it's a mandatory minimum 15% tax. But uh, yeah, in the article, and I can't remember what publication it was now. I don't want to name names because I don't want to get it wrong. But in the article, they basically, they even said it's nice to see America like coming back to the table after four years of being under Trump. And I'm like, this is a policy that like was actually initiated under the Trump government. So anyways, it just goes kind of back to, to yeah. not wanting to give him credit for anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, no, no political leader is exempt from that. You look at even Trudeau here and, and Serb. And I mean, it has saved so many people. I mean, you look it up on Twitter and there are just devastating stories of they would have lost their house and, you know, it basically pulled them back from the brink. And, you know, a lot of people saying, hey, we don't want to live on $2,000. We ha- we were happier with our $50,000 salaries before the coronavirus came in and took those away. Um, you know, but then there's the other side of this is making people lazy and disincentivizes them to work. But, you know, a, a polarizing issue and, you know, a figure who, if you don't like him, you're going to throw serve on him. You're going to say, you know, he he made the workers not return to work. Um, yeah, no, no political leader is exempt from that for sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, it, it kind of goes back to like, we need to, I feel like we really just need to try to bring back nuance and discourse online. Like no, no issue is ever black or white. Like 
and a lot of us would like to think that we don't act that way in real life but for some reason when we go online it's like this is how it is and you're wrong or you're right and there's just no in between and there's no room for discussion even serb like there's maybe some probably some good points to both of those arguments like there's it's not a black or white issue it's a matter of opinion right and have you seen research that is showing Canadians are becoming more polarized? Um, there's definitely evidence that would suggest that Canadians are becoming more polarized. Uh, we can't say specifically, like we can't say specifically that that social media polarizes people and there are Canadians on social media. So therefore you could arguably say that Canadians on social media are becoming more polarized. So you could make that argument there. Um, we can also say, I, I can't remember exactly which paper it was in, but uh, there is evidence that suggests that Canadians are becoming more effectively polarized, um, which is different from saying that like there is more political polarization. Uh, what that basically is saying is that in online discourse or in we're we're becoming more likely to you know agree with our in group is what effectively polarized means. So if you're if you're saying like you're conservative and you agree with conservative policies, then uh, we're, we're becoming more kind of more like the states where if you agree with conservative policies, but there is a conservative policy that you wouldn't normally agree with, you're going to agree with it because it's mm -hmm. part of your in-group and part of your um, part of your cultural identity. So so that is something that uh, we've seen in Canada recently. I can't again, I can't remember what study it was, but I have it written down somewhere. So. That's really interesting to me, too, because I remember there was one study, essentially the, the paper showed that when introducing a left winger with a right wing policy labeled as a left wing policy, that left winger was more likely to support it, even though it was actually more right wing. Likewise, on the right, when they introduced a left-wing policy but labeled it as a right-wing policy, they were more likely to agree with it. You know, just showing how dogmatic we can become. Yeah, I mean, how do you how do you change that? I mean, really, there's just no way. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I think there's. I think it's just uh, we will see a big shift. I think we're not. Uh, this just isn't a sustainable form of discourse. I think that we're going to see the way people communicate online changing in some way, whatever way that is, like, who knows? But I just think that we're, we're in a place right now of just like, it feels really taut. Like, I feel like something's going to happen and we're just not, we're not going to be able to continue like this. But yeah, the, it, that just goes back to the psychology of it all, right? Like it's, it's hard to, we want to be part of these in-groups. We want to be part of our community and our communities have transferred online. And then when they're online, we are going to assimilate by, you know, believing the same things and reading or ascribing to the same policies and the same politics. And that's just the, that's just how we're going to interact online. Yeah, I'm oddly optimistic. I feel like the more that, you know, long form conversations like these and like others you've had on podcasts and, you know, other ones I've heard, the more those happen, the more we realize the silos that we've been put into by, you know, by tech companies and realizing that we're actually, we have a lot more in common, you know, than a lot of these big Twitter personalities or, you know, kind of the more sensational pundits would like us to believe. Yeah. And I mean, definitely, I think that um, 
I think just becoming more, just having it be more transparent and people becoming more knowledgeable about what's actually happening um, is going to be a huge thing. Like we've been talking about the political polarization in the States and the scientific misinformation of COVID has really given people a reason to sort of wake up and say like, what are we doing with these online platforms and, and these online information systems? Because it's just not... Like I said before, it's just not a sustainable way of communicating. Mm-hmm. And especially with people who are getting scared of, you know, losing their jobs if they don't say the right thing or, or they haven't learned something. So you get a lot of self-censorship. But there's also the other side of people who are just saying completely ignorant things and taking it and running with it, um, you know, and being rewarded for that. But I think another component, too, is just the fact that when we argue with somebody or debate somebody or even disagree with somebody in real life, you see their eyes. We can sense how much our words can hurt somebody and how our tone can hurt somebody. And the way that some people just act online is is so counter to how they would talk in real life to anybody, um, you know, just for minor ignorances, you know, unintentionally bigoted comments. People who are behaving aggressively online obviously are coming from a good place. They want to help change the culture of this moment and progress forward. But sometimes the means of of doing so, of trying to achieve that, can be a bit harsh. So compared to how that same conversation would happen in real life, probably a little bit more effective in getting that other person to open their mind or see something another way or, you know, realize their ignorance or, um, you know, learn some new facts. We, we should probably consider that and tone down the vitriol a little bit. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's a huge one. Like, the way that we receive information and, and the way that we communicate on a screen are just so different than the way that we interact in person. And I think that that is kind of the one of the biggest things like we we receive information almost in the same way, right? Like if somebody said something to you that is insulting, you feel offended and you feel insulted. And, uh, but you don't react to somebody in person the way you would react to somebody via like technology in front of you. And so it gives you that buffer to just do and say whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And that just, I mean, it's just, it's just such a different way of, of interacting like it's this whole socio-technical web right and I think that it'll be really interesting to see how that evolves and it's also it'll also be really interesting to see the next couple generations are the first generations of humans that have grown up with technology being ubiquitous Mm -hmm. and not having been introduced to technology over time the way the rest of us on the planet were because you know like we were kind of the last generation to grow up where we saw the internet come into existence like we remember a time before the internet that we're the last generation that that is going to happen to and so it'll be really interesting to see how that changes human behavior in on a really fundamental level of like how humans behave and interact with one another Mm -hmm. one thing that calls to mind is i remember being at in in williamsburg there was a big vr party And you could go into different rooms and everyone had, you know, their VR goggles on and (laughs) they were all, you know, experiencing completely different universes. And I remember one fellow, he said, oh, you know, reporting, you should get into doing conflict reporting in VR. 
And I thought, what an absurd idea. You could go into places like the West Bank and you could film what's happening there. And somebody at home can put on those VR goggles and literally step into conflict. And I thought, that is the news I don't really want our children watching. <laughs> but again, you know, every generation was a little bit worried about the way that the future generation was consuming their news. So who knows? I mean, that's true. Like, it's, yeah, it's definitely, it's funny because it's hard to think like, and I'm just kind of kind of rough now, but like, it's hard to think about like, like separating the oh like I'm just worried about this generation and their technology or like this generation like and how they dress or whatever like having those normal sort of intergenerational things and to really say like well this generation is entering a fundamentally different type of world or like a fundamental shift is happening right now as a society and uh, those are like different like it's you know, like there are generations that <laughs> there are people that were born, you know, on the cusp of the Renaissance. And I'm sure the generation before them was like, they are never going to know what it was like to like not have this type of art or this type of whatever, like uh, language. And, and uh, yeah, like there is, there is, there are some gen or like the generation before the industrial revolution. Like there are some phases in human existence where it's just like, <laughs> There's the normal intergenerational intergenerational worry and then there's like this huge shift and we've like I think we're on this cusp of this huge shift of of technology so and you know the doomsday generations before us you know for example the boomers saying oh my gosh those phones those cell phones are going to take over your guys's lives and then they did <laughs> and that's funny actually today I was reading a lot of um like all my research today was right around uh, sort of the people who were internet. And it's weird to think about this as like the present tense because it just feels so past tense. But the people who were like internet idealists when the internet came out and how, because there was a mo like a lot of these people were like, the internet is going to be this beautiful utopia of like shared ideas and like this, you know, completely open roadway and you know civic discourse is gonna mm -hmm. is gonna just flourish and it just is like so funny to look back and and read some of these things like it's just oh man I need to share this resource with you because it was so funny I was reading this guy who's like he's very famous and I can't remember him I'm insulting him I'm sure but like it's like basically like a dot-com manifesto of like how amazing technology is and just the first sentence just like drips with condescension for people who are like not in love with the internet and then you just look back and read that now is just like wow <laughs> I remember thinking that actually, uh, looking at the Iraq war and, you know, when we had Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld and, you know, even Colin Powell going and, and blatantly lying to the public and, you know, thinking if people are able to film what's happening in the region and actually, you know, put it on the internet and, and make it live right then and there, they won't be able to lie and, you know, we'll be able to see the truth and, and they won't be able to cover up for all the atrocities. And then, of course, you know, the internet comes and, and if you look it up, it's there are the non-truths. You know, they always say it's the, the post-truth era. And it, it really is true because 
you know, there's video evidence, but you can take out the context, you can change everything. And it's very bizarre realizing that we're having a harder time finding the truth in this era of the internet. That's like so accurate because it's like, and I mean, I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking a lot about like actually just the word post-truth and, and how like that in a way we've always had post-truth, like we've always had people be able to just lie and make things up and, but we've never had people be able to drown out the truth. And I think what really, what it really is, is, is this sort of like naive optimism that like truth will prevail and like the good guys will win and mm-hmm. yeah, like civic discourse will prevail and we will just have this tech utopia that we've dreamed of. And I feel like one thing that I was thinking about today is that this is really ingrained in the culture of technology companies because this is like they were born with this as like their backdrop right like this is how like Google was born it was born in this era where like people really believed that like the internet was going to make the world a better place and I and I feel like because I wonder why and this happens without like when I was looking into the whole like algorithmic bias thing a lot of the solutions that people propose are like more tech (laughs) and it's just like well if we could just make an algorithm that could find bias in algorithms then and i'm like what like how does that make sense in your head like if there's you're building bias into algorithms how would you make an algorithm that is bias free that would be able to take the bias out of an like i just it's yeah and i feel like the solutions proposed by tech companies are like always technology centric and we, for some reason, will continue to buy that as like a thing. Like I remember getting into kind of an almost argument with somebody over this when it was about, we were talking about like Web 3.0 um, because we're entering Web 3.0 essentially within the next like five to 10 years. And it was like, she just kept touting it as like a solution to all of our problems. Like we won't have data issues because we'll have data sovereignty. And I was like, well, how are we going to get data sovereignty? Like, what does that process look like? Where do these technology companies just sort of hand over all of your personal data that they've been collecting forever so that you can have data sovereignty? Mm -hmm. That would be a very tumultuous process. Like, why are we not actually discussing these like nuts and bolts of it? You can look forward and say like, oh, well, this is just going to be this amazing technology utopia but that's what we did you know 40 years ago when we were talking about the internet and it's not a technology utopia we need to force ourselves to think about what is like the absolute worst possible outcome Mm -hmm, definitely and you're touching on you know a problem with funding solutions is that there's so much venture capital and you know the companies that are getting all the press and all the excitement they happen to be technology companies And, you know, obviously with Google, there's that ingrained incentive. And, you know, it it seems to me that we're just we're unable to see these issues that you're pointing out here and that others, you know, from within the industry like Tristan Harris and, you know, others like him. But, you know, the marble's already been placed at the top of the slide. It's you can't really stop the momentum because there's so much excitement about, you know, the massive profits of funding tech and also the people who they they want to bring solutions forward 
how are they going to fund these solutions if they aren't tech which is you know it's a it's a very troublesome place to be <laughs> yeah yeah and i mean like that is i mean that's where something like foresight kind of comes in because we say like in hindsight like 2020 but like in foresight things can be not not 2020 but but the whole point is to look to potential futures and build resilience for them and build solutions for you know potential problems i mean that's definitely part of it i i think about that a lot because part of it is just i think there is this desire to believe that technology will solve our problems we are just a society that we think of technology as being good always like the example i gave you with compass like if somebody comes and tries to sell you a technology that is going to make spit out a number that tells you the chance that this offender is likely to reoffend. you're like i'm buying that tech we don't even think to stop and say like well how was that tech made like how do you put a score on something like that even like what metrics are you looking at it seems so obvious to think about those things but we just sort of think like well it must be right but these are these are tech all of these technologies that we live with are made by people like they're just people who created them and then we just live in this world that is created by them and so we have to be really we have to be a lot more mindful about i think the technology and the algorithms that sort of shape you know these digital spaces and our universe and mm-hmm. um I know you're taking a job after your master's, but is this something that you might pursue going forward? Um, you know, tech and solutions to the problems presented by tech. And yeah, maybe maybe explain your interest in, in all of this. I'm just really interested in the combination of foresight and technology and and using foresight in this space because I think that it's a really, really like we're on the cusp of so many huge things when it comes to tech and it's just totally unprecedented. And it's one of these places where with foresight timelines, we look really far ahead, but with technology, we just can't. Technology changes so quickly that if we think about what the world of tech looked like 10 years ago and what it looks like today, it's so different. And so with foresight and tech, you have to look sort of three to five years in it and see like, what is three years going to look like? Like, what are five years from now going to look like? Um, so this is definitely a space that I want to keep working in. I mean, I don't know if, how long that'll... <laughs> I don't know if I will do that forever, but uh, I'm pragmatic, so, like, I have to move forward and have a job and <laughs> do job things. And don't we all? Well, thank you so much for coming, Kemi. It was such a lovely conversation and, you know, so good to see what you're up to. And, and I'm sure we'll see a lot more of your research in the future. Yeah, I mean, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> and any last words before we leave? I mean, no, not really. I think that's, uh, yeah, that was great. Um, thanks for the interview. And thank you again to all the listeners who tuned in. These podcasts, they're very fun to record, but they take a lot of work. So we really appreciate the listens. If you're not scared off of social media just yet, <laughs> please follow us on all of your apps, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And if you're inclined to visit us online, we're at captureq.com. That's C-A-P-T-U-R-E-Q-U-E-U-E dot -E -E com. Thanks so much and have a good night, everybody.